Our scripture today comes from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were used by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, we're walking through a series called uh, Reshaped. We look at the book of Ephesians. Um, this book is basically Paul writing to a church in Ephesus that he pastored for several years and then passed this church on to Timothy. Uh, but, but what he does in this book is really quite magnificent. It's, it's filled with this lofty, poetic, incredible, magnificent language. Paul opens chapter 1 with just just bursting with, with worship, with doxology, proclaiming what God has done on earth for the believers at Ephesus, which in turn, of course, is true for believers today. And then he kind of shifts gears, and we, we went over this last week, and, and says, I'm, I'm always thankful for you when I, when I pray and I remember you in my prayers. And he says all these amazing things about what God has done for us, right? You've been chosen before the foundation of the world. You've been predestined for adoption as sons. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. You've been given the guarantee of inheritance. Because of, and because of that, he's poured out the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And then he says, I just pray that you would know this. I pray that you would actually know this. Because this reality is true, and it is real, but it so often goes over our heads or doesn't penetrate our hearts. And, and we're, we're prone to living life as if these things weren't true. And so Paul spends another 20 verses or so saying, I pray that you would be aware of the hope that God has actually called you to. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Paul is saying, no matter where you are in life, rich or poor, comfortable or suffering, this truth is what you need. You need to know and be aware of what God has done for you. And that takes us to chapter 2 this morning, where Paul kind of shifts gears, but he is also, in a way, further explaining the same thing of what he just explained but he's using a different uh, example, if you will. And it actually kind of feels like really bad news in verses 1 through 3. 
And then verse 4, he kind of bursts through with, with good news again. Um, a lot of times when you get a text in the Bible, you can't preach through everything that is in that text. And I just want to warn you that that is true this morning because there are 10 verses here, and this right here is, is really, there's so much in it, there's no way I could possibly make it through all of it. So fair warning, I'm not going to teach through everything, but I will get the general thrust of the passage, and if you have questions, feel free to either email us uh, or talk about it in city groups. That's kind of why we have those, so you can dive in uh, and ask questions. If, I were to, if somebody were to say, can you give me one short text on what is quintessential Christianity, I would point you to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And is that important? So, hopefully we'll cover three things, God willing. The first thing is humanity's problem. The second thing is the solution to humanity's problem. And the third thing is the outcome of that solution. Before we go further, let me pray, ask for God's help, and we'll dive in. Lord, uh, you are worthy and mighty and good and all-powerful and so far out of our reach. We are mere creatures here, living in your creation, failing to honor you, in need of your help, in need of your grace, in need of your mercy. And we come to celebrate and remember the fact that you have done something about that. And that is why we dive into your word. That is why we sing songs that proclaim your glory on Sunday mornings, that we may hear of this truth, of what God has done over the course of human history because we believe it changes all things. And so, Lord, as we uh, open your word, may your spirit be with us, empowering your words. And as I teach, may you be with me. You know that, you, that I uh, am helpless apart from your grace. So, help, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, point number one, humanity's problem. I'm sorry to say that it's quite possible you've been sold some kind of false version of Christianity. Um, I'm not saying that to be self-righteous or weird or anything. I'm, I'm only saying that because oftentimes when I talk to people and I ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian, the response typically is something along the lines of, well, be a good person, live a good life, try your best. You know, admit when you make mistakes and so on and so forth. Kind of this, just, just aim at moral living. Now, in and of itself, those, those are not bad things, but they do miss the heart of Christianity. They miss the entire thrust of what Christianity is all about. It is, it first starts with what God has done for us. And that's what Paul unfolds here. And if we miss what Paul is saying then we are tempted to find ourselves in some version of Christianity that is not Christianity at all. So what Paul does here when he opens chapter 2 is he says that you were dead. Let me read that. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. Paul says that we as human beings, the church at Ephesus and everybody else, comes into the world as dead men and women. He doesn't say we come in headed toward disaster. He doesn't say we're headed towards death. He says you're dead in your sin and your trespasses. Now, what does that mean? Well, clearly it doesn't mean that uh, we're physically dead, right? Because he's writing this letter to a group of people that are alive physically. You and I are alive physically. What Paul is talking about is spiritual death. And this answers a fundamental question that has been asked for thousands of years and probably will continue to be asked. And that is, uh, are human beings naturally good? Are they naturally neutral? Or are, are we born evil, wicked, bad? Paul answers the question very clearly. He says we're born in sin. We're born spiritually dead, incapable of any ultimate good. The quintessential example of this is that we see kids come into the world. We don't have to teach them to rebel. We don't have to teach them to be bad, so to speak. They simply rebel, and they love it. What's their favorite word? No. Don't do that. What is the first thing they do? That. Whatever that don't do is, they do it. Right? I saw Kelly, actually, my wife, shared this, uh, this post of photos of all these children just losing their minds. And uh, they had little captions under them for why they were actually losing their minds. And my favorite one was uh, this little kid, like, sitting on the ground next to an electrical socket, losing his mind, just crying, you know, his face is all red and his tears dripping down his cheeks. And the caption is, I wouldn't let him electrocute himself. The kid's all bent out of shape because he couldn't stick his finger in an electrical socket. Um, so I recognize that we struggle with this truth. Look, Paul flies through the door and says, you're dead in sin. And our initial reaction is, whoa, dude, isn't that a little heavy? Aren't you maybe overstating things a little bit? It's a blow to our ego. It's a blow to our pride. We don't like it. But the question is, is it true? Or are we just reacting to it because we dislike it? You might ask why Paul is doing this and why I'm spending time on these first three verses this morning, which seem to be bad news in general. And the reason why is unless we get verses 1 through 3, when we get to verse 4, it won't mean anything to us. Unless we sit under the weight of we're dead in sin, we're sons of disobedience, we're by nature children of wrath, then what God has done for us will not be sweet to our soul. It will not be good. It will not be worth hearing. It will not change your life. A life raft given to a drowning person is invaluable, right? If you handed it to somebody walking down the street, they would be like, what are you doing? It's the same way with the text. Unless we get what Paul is saying to us in verses 1 to 3, we will not find the grace of God good or sweet or life-giving. I recognize that our culture 
does not like this. We live in an age of the self, where the self is exalted above all other things. We have these pithy little slogans like, you do you, and YOLO, and don't let anyone change you. Live your life the way that you see fit, and you do your thing. That's, that's what culture says to us. Let me ask, just pause for a second. I realize it's probably well-intentioned what our culture is saying, but if you think about it, does it really make sense? Is that really what makes the world beautiful? Because in essence, when you say things like, you do you, is put yourself at the center of the universe. Make all things in your life revolve around you. You do whatever you want. You do whatever you like. Don't mind anyone else's preferences. Do your own thing. When you think about it, does anybody ever really like a selfish person, which we all are? Is that a beautiful trait? Is that a beautiful characteristic to look at? Does that make the world a better place? No, absolutely not. We don't find selfishness beautiful. It's inherently a bad thing. The world is better when people are giving, when they are not the center of the universe. I'm sure you've had a bad boss, unfortunately. What makes them bad? Is it not the fact that they probably don't listen to feedback, that they do things their way without considering valuable opinions around them? It's not a good way to lead. You do you breaks down when you think about it. Again, it's probably well-intentioned, this slogan, but it's misguided. So not only are we up against that sort of roadblock, that, that culture is proclaiming a completely different narrative than what Paul is saying here, we also find it personally offensive. And I get it. I'm with you. It's not super exciting to hear, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You don't have what it takes. You don't live up spiritually. As a matter of fact, you can't do anything spiritually good. You have no life within you. We hate being told that we failed or messed up or fell short. It stings too much. Again, it's a blow to our ego. It's a challenge to our pride. We much prefer being praised. Consider this in your own life. When it comes to romantic relationships, long-time friendships, family dynamics, workplace dynamics, how quick are you to say... I screwed up, I failed, I messed up. Why is it so hard for us to say that? It is completely antithetical to every feeling in your body. Every bone in your body says, defend yourself. I didn't screw up, it was so-and-so and so-and-so, and and if they didn't do this, I wouldn't have done this. Does this not reveal to us what our nature truly is coming into the world? that we're dead in sin. Even people that we love, right? I love my wife. I committed my life to her and vice versa, but I'm still a jerk to her sometimes. I still struggle to say, I'm sorry, I screwed up. Researchers show that the hardest six words in the English language to pronounce in succession are I am wrong, you are right. Researchers didn't show that, I'm kidding. But 
you knew it was true, right? I don't, and researchers don't need to do research on that because you already know how hard it is. So the question is why? Why is it so hard to be honest about our faults? Why do we get so defensive? Why do we hate it when Paul says things like this? You are dead in your sin. John Stott makes a good point. The question, by the way, to that, the answer to that question, why, is because of what Paul is saying here. John Stott makes a good point, though. He says this, Much that we take for granted in a civilized society is based upon the assumption of human sin. Nearly all legislation has grown up because human beings cannot be trusted to settle their own disputes with justice and without self-interest. A promise is not enough. We need a contract. Doors are not enough. We have to lock and bolt them. The payment of fares is not enough. Tickets have to be issued, inspected and collected. Law and order are not enough. We need the police to enforce them. All this is due to man's sin. We cannot trust each other. We need protection against one another. It is a terrible indictment of human nature. So here's the question of the day. It's not, do you like what Paul is saying? It's not, does it make you feel better? The question is, is what Paul is saying actually true? Because if it is, it changes everything. And if you say that you don't think that it's true, that we're dead in sin, what's your reason for saying that? How do you explain things like genocide, sex trafficking, global warfare, the abuse of power, extortion, selfishness that runs rampant? How do you explain the evils of the world? I don't think that you can give a logical and coherent answer if human beings are naturally good. Why is everything so broken? The 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. I don't think we can argue that humanity is improving. Sometimes when I talk to people about this, they say, well, okay, fair enough, but I'm not quite with you. I think that there are good people in the world, and there are also bad people in the world. So I know a lot of nice, good people, and I don't think that this, this adds up. Uh, fair enough, and I, I unfortunately don't have time to get into the details of even the good things that we do are done from selfish motives. Maybe we're afraid of what other people will think of us, so we're super nice. Maybe we want people to revere us, so we're super nice, you know, because if we're mean, we're generally disliked. We don't have time to dive too deeply into that, but I want to say there are a few problems with the approach of saying there are good people and bad people in the world and drawing a, a nice black and white line between them. The first thing is, do you consider yourself one of the good people? Of course you do, right? <laughs> the question is, do the bad people also consider themselves one of the good people? <laughs> yeah, I would say. I, I don't know many people that are like, no, I'm one of the bad people in this, this scheme of good people and bad people in the world. I'm one of the bad ones. You see the irony there? <laughs> Nobody thinks they're bad. Even the bad people, quote unquote. 
Secondly, you realize that's a very self-righteous stance to take, right? And even if you don't walk around saying that in your mind, it will subtly flesh its way out in the way that you treat other people. If you say, I am in the camp of the good people, and those people over there are in the camp of the bad people, you will look at them as subhuman. You will dehumanize them, and you will elevate yourself, and you will stand above them, and you will look down on them. You will have no choice but to be self-righteous. And if you think you're a good person, there's one commandment that will indict us all, okay, to reveal that we are indeed dead in sin. It's a commandment in Scripture, and it goes like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Just blew away everybody's standard of righteousness. None of us have done that. None of us do that. There's not a single person in this room who has done that. There's not a single person in human history that has loved God as they should, except for Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you say, well, you know, I don't really believe in God, but I still think I'm a good person. I got another one for you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do we do that? No. I promise there is nobody that has loved their fellow human being, regardless of who they are, with the same fervency that they have themselves. I meet my own needs real quickly. I don't meet my neighbor's needs with the fervency that I meet my own. We fall short of the standard. And if you say, well, no one's perfect, that's just a fluffier way of saying what Paul is saying here. Yeah, nobody is perfect. Why? We're dead in our sin. We're sons of disobedience. We're by nature children of wrath. C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. What's he saying? He's saying that Christianity has a way of revealing reality and explaining why the world is the way it is in a way that no other thought system or religion or worldview has of doing. See, this, this doctrine of sin is the key that sort of unlocks the mystery to all of the brokenness in the world. Okay. There's a little phrase in here that says children of wrath. It says that by nature we were children of wrath. That means by birth. You could just take away by nature and replace it with by birth, and it means the same thing. And I recognize, and I just want to touch briefly on this word wrath. I know that that is like an inflammatory word in our culture. God has a wrath. You know, what's the deal with that? Isn't that like archaic and oppressive and just a religious tool to fearmonger people into being behaving themselves in society? 
you know, I, I like this, this idea of a loving God, a peaceful God. I'm, I'm all on board with harmony. It's great. But as soon as you drop this word wrath in here, immediately I'm like, what? I, I, I like the loving God of Christianity, not the God of wrath, right? That's, that's what, what people say. But if you trace this out, I think you'll find that it doesn't make sense for a loving God not to be wrathful. They are not mutually exclusive. Why? Is there evil in the world? Yes. Should God punish that evil? Yes. There are a lot of victims in the world, right? Things like abuse. Should those who commit such acts be punished? Surely God is not loving if he doesn't defend the disenfranchised and the marginalized and the taken advantage of. There are a lot of victims in the world. Should God stand by indifferently and allow that to perpetually happen? That's not a good God in my book. That is not a loving God. We're also perpetrators. We've all committed evil against one another. We've diminished the humanity in other people. We've been selfish. We've made others feel small. We've taken the image of God on other people lightly. Are these not grave evils? Things that God should be bringing justice on, so to speak, punishing, bringing consequence to? If God were indifferent to all of these things, he would not be worthy of our praise. Another thing I, I want to mention is that God's wrath is not like some drunk uncle who's flying off the handle and just all of a sudden overflows and spills and loses control and, you know, kicks the puppy. God's wrath is intentional, it is decisive, it is just, it is fair. Any consequence that ever happens to any human being by the hand of God is utterly just and utterly fair. God knows all things. He's the only one that can judge rightly. You and I cannot. We often do. God's wrath is just. We are used to anger spilling out of impure places, right? From an impure heart, from a selfish motive. God's wrath is not so. It is merely to satisfy justice. And lastly, God doesn't take pleasure in punishing the wicked. Ezekiel chapter 33 verses 11, verse 11, excuse me, says, "As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel?" And then in 2 Peter 3:9, we get a glimpse of God's desire for humanity as well. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Paul, in verses 1 to 3, is being merciful to the Ephesians, and he's being merciful to you and me. Why? Because we need to know this truth. I'm sure 
Everybody in here has at some point in their life seen an action movie, and probably in that action movie, because it's in most action movies, is some, some spot where you know, this unsuspecting victim is about to get into a car and drive it, and there's like a bomb strapped to it, you know, and then 30 seconds after they're driving the car, it's going to blow up, right? You've seen that. You have the image in your mind. What's the most loving thing that you can do to that, for that person? There's a bomb in the car. Don't get in. It's going to blow. The car is going to explode. That is a merciful statement to those people. That's what Paul is doing here, and that's what I'm saying to you this morning, because I care about you enough to tell you there's a bomb under the car. You're dead in sin. You're in trouble. There's a way out, though. Verse 4, Paul indicts humanity, and then he gets to this glorious phrase, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ. But God. Humanity was indicted, was dead in sin, sons of disobedience, children of wrath. But God. God did not look down in indifference on our situation, he acted on our behalf. This means that the all-powerful, almighty, eternal God of the universe, who has created all things and sustains all things and simply needs to speak a word and it comes true, let there be light, this God who needs for nothing, who wants for nothing, who rightfully possesses all things, looked down and did something about our rebellion, about our foolishness, about our rejection of him while we were still dead. While we were dead in our sin, God did this. He didn't look down and say, oh, son or daughter, you're responding rather well. Let me do something about this. No, it's while we were weak, when we were ungodly, when we were dead in our sin, incapable of coming to Him, He pursued and He pursued and He pursued and He loved us. This is what we call the gospel. Good news. It is not good advice. It's not be a better person. Do this and maybe you'll get this. That's advice. It's burdensome advice. This is good news. It says, but God... You are this, you're broken, you're a mess, you're a disaster, you're a sinner, you love wickedness, but God did something about it on your behalf. God came and God changed the narrative. This idea that God helps those who help themselves is bunk. It is not true. God helps the helpless. God is the hope of the hopeless, and that is what we were. So... If we are to approach God, we have one plea and one plea only, His mercy towards us. The hymn puts it well, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You have nothing to offer God, I have nothing to offer God. God is merciful and gracious and kind. So when we approach him, 
we approach according to his mercy, recognizing that verses 1 through 3 are true for us. What's glorious about this, too, is that it's not merely that you were at enmity with God, that you were at war with God, and he all of a sudden makes you neutral. It's not as though he says, well, I'm just not mad at you anymore, but let's just kind of keep our distance. It actually says that he raises us up with Christ. It is infinitely better than just forgiveness. You are treated as though you were perfectly righteous because of what Christ has done. Remember verse 121? It says, uh, uh, well, starting verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Do you know what? Because that's Jesus Christ's seat, if you are in him, if you believe on him, if you know that you are a sinner and he has done what you could never do, that is also your position. This reality makes something like the office of President of the United States look like child's play. The most powerful man in this world is here today, gone tomorrow, like a mist that vanishes. But in Christ... You are seated with him in the heavenly places, far above all rule, all authority, all dominion, above every name that is named. And that will be eternally so for you if you are in Christ. This means on a personal level, we need not walk around wallowing in our guilt anymore. It means that the guilt that you live under and I live under no longer needs to control our lives. And the weight of your guilt does influence the way you do things. We all cope differently with it, right? Some of us veg out and watch TV. Others of us hop from relationship to relationship to relationship. Others with us make sure that we don't get into relationships because we don't want them to see the mess, right? But God... God made you guiltless, clean, spotless if you trust that Jesus has done what you can never do. And on a global level, it means that God is dealing with the problem of evil. The brokenness, the death, the sadness, the heartache, the suffering, the tribulation. God has dealt with it on the cross and is dealing with it ultimately to restore all things. John Stott says this, Many people visualize a God who sits comfortably on a distant throne, remote, aloof, uninterested, and indifferent to the needs of mortals until, it may be, they can badger him into taking action on their behalf. Such a view is wholly false. The Bible reveals a God who, long before it even occurs to man to turn to him, while man is still lost in darkness and sunk in sin, takes the initiative, rises from his throne, lays aside his glory, and stoops to seek until he finds him. That is the good news of Christianity. That is what God has done on your behalf. And he accomplished it by giving up his own life. Jesus Christ is the rightful heir to all things. He is the only human being that has ever actually honored God, that deserves affection from God, that deserves praise and commendation from God and relationship with God. And what did he do? 
He chose to give it all up so that you and I could have it. That's the gospel. We'll close on this. Verse 7, why did God do this? Point 3, the purpose of God's mercy says this, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God give us this mercy? So he could reveal to us the riches of his kindness eternally. See, there's in, in our culture, uh, and in all cultures really, there's this semi-predictable but moving storyline You've probably seen it in 90% of the movies that you've gone to see. In the beginning of the movie, things are good, you know. All the characters are doing well. And then at some point, this wrench gets thrown into the plot and, you know, things are dark and dismal and they appear hopeless and they're without resolution. And then all of a sudden, some hero comes in to restore all things. And I, you know, I hate it because I think it's kind of cheesy sometimes, right? I'm sitting in the movie theater, and I know what's going to happen, and I still am like, I get goosebumps a little bit sometimes. And here's why I think I'm a little bit cynical about it. Here's why I think you're tricking me, because, you know, Monday's still going to roll around, you know, and and the hardships of life are still going to be there. I'm going to walk out of the movie theater... 30 minutes, all that's not going to be true anymore. Crime is still happening, you know, like two streets away from my house or something. And uh, So I, I think I, got, I get a little cynical about it, and I'm like, I don't want to buy in because I'm really being duped. You know, they're feeding me this story to make me feel better, but it's not really the way things are. But you know what Paul says? <laughs> that's actually the way things will be. <laughs> Eternally. Never to be changed. Peter says that it's an inheritance that is imperishable. It's irrevocable. The glory of eternity will be that you are marveling at what Jesus Christ has done for humanity. It will be your deepest joy. It will be your deepest satisfaction. It will be so sweet to your soul you can hardly bear it. Forever forever and every week we do something called communion in which we celebrate what Jesus did for us the way that we celebrate is by remembering death on a cross which involved his body broken for you his blood spilled for you we could never do it we were dead in sin but God being rich in mercy sent Jesus in your place And just like Paul says in chapter 1, this is what we need to hear over and over and over and over again. So we're going to do three more songs. At any point during those songs, feel free to come up, take communion, remember what Christ did. Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy beyond our comprehension. What you have done for us in Christ is a magnificent magnificent reality that cannot be overstated. And Lord, we pray that as a people, our hearts would not be cold or dull or numb to the glories of your truth. Lord, that in our daily lives, we would flesh out verses 1 through 3 that we are 
hopeless and helpless. And then we would get to the glorious bursting truth of verse 4. But God, rich in mercy. And that that would slowly, slowly shape us and deeply shape us into the people that you desire us to be. We thank you for what you've done on our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Our benediction today comes from Romans 5, 6 through 10. For while we were still meek, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Go in peace.